Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential. It's your weekly look at all things royal brought to you from Mail HQ right here in Kensington. I'm Jo Elvin and after the controversy around the naming of their daughter Lilibet, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex said that they would be taking several months of parental leave. But that hasn't stopped Team Archwell releasing news about them seemingly every week. And the latest bombshell is, of course, that Harry has been writing a memoir to come out next year. Victoria Murphy joins me now via Skype. Victoria, hello. What do you know about the book? What can you tell us? Hi there. Yes, well, bombshell news indeed, you know, despite everything that Harry has already said, and there has been a lot, um, it's clear that he feels that he hasn't yet laid out his side of the story in full. And that's what this book is going to do. It's being described as the definitive account of his experiences, adventures and life lessons. It's going to cover a lot of ground. It's going to cover his childhood, his military service, meeting Meghan, becoming a father. And I think you know, we can expect significant new revelations in there, which will lift the lid even further on life behind closed doors, which is obviously the opposite of the way that the rest of the royals want to do things. I think, you know, quite significantly, it's going to be released, tentatively scheduled for release at the end of 2022, which is, of course, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee year. So potentially a very different end to that year than the royal family had been hoping for. Gosh, and as we know, this came to us as a surprise to many of us, and I understand a big surprise to the palace as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't certainly seems that they weren't given a lot of notice of the news. I was told that Harry spoke with his family very recently about the book, and this was when the announcement was made. It's also been said that Prince Charles was surprised by the news. I certainly think it's very clear that there hasn't been significant consultation with the royals, and I don't think there will be, because this is very much Harry's project. What his team are saying is that he wouldn't be expected to obtain permission from Buckingham Palace for a project like this. But, you know, while Harry has the right to tell his story, I think, you know, he's also telling a story that hugely impacts how other people are seen, how other members of the royal family are seen. So I think, you know, there'll be a lot of nervousness about this by the royal family. I think the concern for them is obviously whether or not his definitive version of events is a fair representation of things as they see them. And, you know, Harry is in the editor's chair and there's a lot at stake here because this could really further damage relationships within the family. And also, I think, you know, within the, the monarchy's future, if he writes something that turns public opinion significantly against senior royals. And he's had quite a nice uh, little payday with it, something to the tune of £50 million for the book. So you would imagine then that the publishing house would like their pound of flesh in the terms of even more big revelations. What what are you betting on might, might be included? Well, yes, I mean, all these figures are unconfirmed. All that we're being told officially is that proceeds are going to charity, but it's not clear exactly what that means in terms of, of how much he's getting, how much he's being paid, how much will be considered profit, all that kind of thing. Um, I think there's a lot more to reveal, and I think that we will see some big revelations. You know, when you think back to the last few years, Harry and Meghan have said quite a bit, but I still think there are so many gaps in terms of this story and so much more to make public if they want to do it. And Harry clearly does. And, you know, the 
rest of the royal family clearly don't. And I think what's going to be interesting for the other royals is that I think, you know, they will have to make a decision really about, about how to respond to this, whether or not to come forward and, and say their, tell their version of events if they feel that Harry's version is not how they see it. They don't want to be open about what's gone on behind closed doors. But if they're not, then of course, Harry's ver version could become the definitive version of events as they happened. Now, it's interesting you, you mentioned the response and the reaction. Uh, could we be looking at two places opening up for the Jubilee 2022 celebrations on the end of this? Well, I think that's interesting. You know, it's it, it's very hard to sort of know exactly how things are going to pan out next year with the Jubilee celebrations. But I think a lot of people would see a conflict between them appearing on the balcony during the celebrations in what I think would be described as a united front with the rest of the royals. And then just a few months later, Harry's book revealing a lot of things that causes the royal family upset and damage. You know, we don't know what's in the book, but certainly every other time Harry and Meghan have spoken, there have been significant negative repercussions for the rest of the royals in many cases. Um, and I think, you know, there are still significant tensions and the fact that in the promotional material for this book, Harry describes it as not being written as the prince I was born, but as the man I've become, you know, it does really set those things up, I think, very much in opposition. It does sort of present this, this interesting question because they left to move forward with their new lives and to have a different life. But, you know, in into saying that he's going to do this book, Harry is very much going to be looking back. And, you know, that is where we are going to now be looking and the story around them is going to be looking back at their time in the royal fold because that is what this book is going to be covering. Thank you so much, Victoria. He really is the story that keeps on giving. And let's go to our panel now. Joining me this week is author and historian Dr. Tessa Dunlop and the Daily Mail's diarist Richard Eden. Welcome to you both. I'm going to start with you, Richard. Now, we know Prince Harry doesn't need the money. 50 million pounds or whatever it's reported. So this is just about him getting his story out, isn't it? I think it really is. There's been a lot written about how he's doing it for the money and this sort of thing. And obviously it is a hell of a lot of money, but they are rich people now. And I, from everything I hear, that's not his main motivation. That's, that's what easy, to, that's rich people can say that, can't they? Mm. That's, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's but not, let's be clear, his main motivation is revenge. You know, I heard um, this week from someone, a very sort of senior old friend of Prince Charles, who said that um, Prince Harry has always been very, very bitter about the royal family's treatment of his mother. And he's become more bitter over time about the royal family's treatment of him, and particularly Meghan. And this is revenge, essentially. This will all be... It's just a question of how damaging it will be. Will it be a little bit damaging for the royal family, or will you know, he go the whole hog and make it extremely damaging. I think revenge makes it sound like the sort of baddies and goodies. <laughs> I think, but I, I think that that is, that does seem to be the narrative that he's constructed. I think that might be the fallout from this peculiar Californian construct. I wonder if there isn't also quite a lot of Harry who needs self-validation. Harry who also enjoys being in the limelight. I agree with you, it's not just about the money, it's about the buzz. He likes it. It's obvious he likes being number one, the centre of attention. Who doesn't? Despite, you know? despite decamping to America for privacy? Oh, well, OK, that yeah. was a byline, wasn't it, darling? Yeah. That was why yeah. we took off in our jet. You know? <laughs> we needed space from you lot, yeah. you yeah. know, but yeah. quite frankly, not yeah. from the great uh, embrace of America. And I think um, that that is bigger 
perhaps for Harry, that at the moment the heat's on them. How do you keep the water boiling? You know, every famous person has this problem. You know, once you're at the peak, Staying there well, ro is a royals problem. don't have that problem. No, but he's no longer royal. Exactly. So he has yeah. to maintain the momentum. And I would argue that it's a little premature. For, uh, of course, he's going to. I didn't realise this when I first heard the news. He's cashing in. Is that the word to use on the plat the momentum from the, the uh, platinum jubilee, which is a little cynical. Um, now, if you look, history tells us this has been done before. Abdicated Edward VIII, one of the most famous men in the world when he abdicated. Didn't, didn't and the reason he brought it out was he was fearful that actually the authorised biography of his brother, who was then king, George VI, was going to spill beans. And also Stanley Baldwin, the former prime minister, might be writing a biography, etc. So out he comes with his. The timing's very good and clever in that respect. I think it's 1951. He abdicates in 36. Mm. And it makes quite a lot of money. He's got a very good co-writer, ghostwriter, and it does very well. But he's waited 14 long years. And incidentally, the subsequent two books didn't do very well. So if you're going to blow it, you know, I would say, hold your horses, Harry. Because you can't say, oh, it's about the man I've become. You've only had a year and a half at the farm. In the past, we've just sort of heard in Harry's words, like in the infamous Oprah interview, and it's all been a bit sort of clumsy, whereas with this ghostwriter, um, I'm sure it will be an excellent book. You know, he's a terrific writer, and in the case of Andre Agassi, you know, it was a very powerful story. Tessa, Harry may well argue that both of his parents wrote books at the height of their divorce proceedings to tell their story. Um, is that a fair comparison? It is. It would be a strange one for Harry to use, given that those books saw his parents uh, move ever faster down this catastrophic road, which yeah. ended horribly in an acrimonious divorce. And ultimately, of course, Diana outside the firm. We, we know how the story ends. It's horrible. So I don't think that would be a route or an argument Harry would want to go down. Of course, he could say people write about me all the time. Omid Scobie, Robert Lacey, you've got his book over there. I see, you know, people are always going to be pumping out books. The difference is this is Harry's own take. He signed it off. We know he's Murringer, this very talented writer, is going to be interpreting Harry's story, but Harry will give it the sign-off. Now, all I would say to Harry, I was a warning shot across the bows, there's something about putting people's stories in books. I do it for a living. It's different from writing a newspaper article. It's different from saying something on a podcast. Well, what's interesting it, is your story is also somebody else's story. Exactly. You know? yeah, and, yeah. And, and actually, once you've had it said in a book, once it's there, a tome for eternity, always to be tapped up in the British Library, it ain't going to go away. You can't take that back. I nearly killed my marriage with the first book I wrote. And when I write oh, about... So I really want to read that book now. Old Woman. Well, I didn't publish it in, 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 the, in the language of my, husband, uh, my husband's native country because he wouldn't allow me. It was, it was a big mistake. I regret it. They love that phrase, my truth, but there's a lot of people involved in this very famous family in this story. Well, you know, Harry has been saying, oh, it's going to be very honest and this sort of thing. But again, this shows how unfair it is because just like their Oprah interview, he will be writing about people who can't answer back. Mm. And, and that's the whole point of the royal family. The Queen has, her entire life, has managed to maintain that I feel sorry for him. Well, well, we'll be waiting. It's pretty standard in book publishing timelines. We'll be waiting till the end of 2022. A relatively short time, actually, for a book deadline. But that's a long time for the royal family to wait to see what's in this book, isn't oh, it? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there will be endless stories speculating mm. about what will be in the book. 
and it, it, the whole process will be damaging for the do, royal family. Do you know what? I know you're going to screw this, Richard. I actually feel sorry for him because I think he's trapped in this sort of existential nightmare of having to compete with the royal family. Like, kind of, I can outgun you. Look, I'm bigger than you. My stories are capping yours. But, and they but, have but done this. But he could week. retreat from that. Yeah, he has he no could need just to have his private whatsoever. life. I, I, but I don't think he knows how to. And he's a bit addicted to it. It's very addictive, fame and fortune. Mm. It's an incredible adrenaline hit. Mm. He's, uh, he's crashing down this ugly cul-de-sac. I worry for him. What, well, what, I think what do you... Sorry, carry on. I was just going to say, I do think we're getting a sort of element of good cop, bad cop with Meghan and Harry's not coming out well. Last week, we were on this programme talking about the big Sussex announcement last week, which was a Meghan TV project for Netflix, yeah. and that was all very positive about her as a feminist role model. And the next week, oh, it's bad Harry. It's going to be spilling the beans <laughs> with his tell-all memoir. Yeah. And it seems to be... This is a narrative which Harry's falling into of he's the one making the claims, making the allegations, and Meghan's rising above that. What, do you, what do you think of the choice of ghostwriter? This J.R. Murring who's done lots of celebrity biographies. We mentioned right. Andre Agassi. Well, tell you what, he ain't coming cheap, that yeah. what, what? Uh, Interestingly, it won't be Harry's first ghostwriter because when he was at Eton, one of the teachers, it was his art tutor, said that she had ghostwritten his, um, part of his A-level art project. Oh, I wish I'd had that at school. And, no, this was totally <laughs> crucial because yeah. he had to get an A-level pass to get into the elite academy of San military academy at Sandhurst. And this teacher was eventually um, sacked, wow. but she took Eton to, um, to an employment tribunal, won her case um, for unfair dismissal. And she had helped Harry get through this exam, and she described herself as his ghostwriter. Well, of course, Prince Harry and Eton have both denied that he ever cheated, but... Definitely the villain of Agassi's memoir was his domineering, um, cold, distant father. And also it was about I Hate Tennis. That was the big revelation of Agassi's book. This is going to be... Well, I Hate the Royalty is I not a royalty. revelation. <laughs> it's just not anymore. No. Yeah. But, but there'll be... You know what it's like when you read a good book and... and uh, Moringa knows how to write a good book. I think his, his biography is currently being made into a film by the Clooney's. By Isn't George that Clooney, no possibly doubt, the collection? The con connection. Yeah. So I think it'll be a good read, so it'll get a huge audience. Yeah. I also think you'll find there are revelations and they will be uncomfortable. I'm going to just remind you of our two former residents of Number 10, Sherry Blair's memoir, sold off the back of failed contraception or non-existent contraception. That's right, yes, Heaven they forbid. conceived at Balmoral. <laughs> Sorry to remind yeah. you of that, everyone. Yeah. And, and David Cameron. Nobody cares. This is the you know Brexit's Frankenstein but actually all we cared about was did he tell the Queen to, to, to come out against Scottish independence mm. yeah that's, you know? it's very true I mean just one last thing slightly changing tack but Yet, you know, this, this sort of like narrative against how dreadful it is being part of the royal family, but he wants to come back and christen Lilibet in the UK. Any, any thoughts to that, share? That was a story I broke in my column um, last Saturday, and I've heard lots of people since um, saying, oh, no, they're going to be punished, the Sussexes. They won't be having invitations to the Platinum Jubilee celebrations or that christening's not going to happen. Well, from everything I hear, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. The, the royal family has to try to draw them in as much as possible. So those invitations won't be stopped. It will be the opposite. They will be trying to sort of reach out to them and make sure this book is not as damaging as I it possibly could keep be. keeping body yeah. language experts all around the country in business. But also it makes them look bigger than the book. Rise above it. And they can. Why? Because they're in the ultimate gilded cage. 
that is the monarchy. It's fascinating, but we're going to move on right now. And as we hear more about this, we'll let you know right here on Palace Confidential, of course. Let's head back to Victoria Murphy now for some more of this week's royal news. Victoria, while all this has been going on, there's been another book announced from somebody called Prince William, who's putting together his own book. <laughs> that news has slightly been drowned out, hasn't it? Well, yes, it's a very different kind of book to Harry's, and it's one that we're much more used to our royals releasing. And um, so this was announced just a day after Harry's book news, and William is writing the foreword for a book to accompany his Earthshot Prize. And the Earthshot Prize, you may remember, was launched last year, and it aims to find 50 ideas to save the planet across 10 years until 2030. The book is called Earthshot, How to Save Our Planet, and it's also going to feature contributions from um, Earthshot Prize Council members, which include Shakira and Sir David Attenborough, among others. But yes, you're right, you know, this book didn't get the attention that Harry's did. And I think this is the dilemma for the working royals because they want the focus to be on their work. But you know, there's a huge amount of interest in these personal stories and in this rift and in everything that has gone on behind the scenes. And when you compare the interest in some of their engagements that they're working on and, and this story, you know, I think that there is a, a lot of interest in those personal relationships. This whole year has been a bit of a blur, isn't it? Where has the time gone when now Prince George is turning eight? Um, how have the family marked that? Yes, I know it's really hard to believe that, that he is eight now. It just seems like that's whizzed by. Um, they've stuck to their sort of tradition of releasing a picture every year, and they've released a new picture of him. It was taken by Kate earlier this month in Norfolk. It shows him sitting on a Land Rover, which is, of course, quite a nice touch. It's a nod, clearly, to Prince Philip. Um, and I think, you know, the schools have broken up now for the summer. And this time last year, the Cambridges were um, on holiday in the Isles of Scilly. And I think this is the sort of time of year when we expect them to be spending a little bit of time together as a family. And did you, were you impressed with the Duchess's photography skills on this one? And it's something that we've become very used to seeing. When they first started releasing the pictures taken by her, that was a sort of a story. Ooh, Kate's taking her own photographs and there was discussion around that. But now, you know, we've got very used to it and they do seem to, I mean, to, to me, they look pretty similar to the pictures that we see taken by the professionals. Do you think we'll start to see more of Prince George? I mean, one of, one of the very few reasons to smile in the Euro 2020 final was those cute pictures of him in the box cheering along with his dad. Was, was that a deliberate move to take him for that public appearance? I mean, I think with that public appearance, I think, you know, let's be honest, George is a football fan, you know, we've seen him at other matches. And so I think there's also a bit with that, you know, if you have the opportunity to have a ringside seat for such a large event and you're a, a fan, sort of what seven, eight year old fan wouldn't want to be there. But I think it does also reflect the fact that there is an acknowledgement of his position. I thought the fact that he was wearing a suit sort of made it feel a bit more like a more formal sort of representation, a public engagement rather than a sort of informal, casual family moment that we were capturing. Um, but I have to say as well, I did feel quite sorry for them when England lost and he was there sort of in the limelight and looking really, really sad and it was really late. And it was sort of a reminder really that when you're a public figure, you know, you're in the spotlight through the good times and the bad times. And I guess that's something that he has to get used to as well. When you're an England supporter, you're going to have to get used to pulling that face, I'm afraid. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. Richard, do you think this book is going to continue to eclipse, you know, the, these stories? Victoria making the point that the royals want to be business as usual, demonstrate that they're working royals. And this bombshell book suddenly overshadowed that. A another thing overshadowing from L.A. Well, I think what we've seen this week, as ever, is the royals doing what they do and business as usual. Um, you know, Charles and Camilla lifting people's spirits by um, carrying out public engagements. 
and William doing, despite what Tess says, doing a you know, wonderful project where they, he's got big, big money together to try to get some ideas to help save our world. It couldn't yeah. be bigger than that. Do you have any sympathy for William? I have a lot of sympathy for, for, for Charles and William. I just don't think... They're always, they're not headline grabbers. They're kind of wonderfully mediocre guys who are in this extraordinary institution and they trundle along. And because we all know who they are, they do get a, a disproportionate amount of news. But I think that story, William and, and Earthshot, might have made page seven and probably yesterday instead it made page 17. So Harry has had a dent on that narrative but you could argue Harry is keeping the royal family in the news you could flip it around and say that oh we've talked now about William's Earthshot problem thanks to Harry meaning everyone's tuning into the royal family no again. that's ridiculous no, no, I'm sorry it's not they, ridiculous they really don't that they really don't need Prince Harry to keep the royal but, family uh, actually, in the news no. yeah. arguably to, to bounce out of you know royal magazines and her majesty and hare and hound or whoever it is who are the real royal sticklers I think you do need blockbuster names and blockbuster books and, and arguably Harry's living that. I'm not saying the royal family want that. I think quite a lot of the time they just like to trundle along in well, their this is little the, lane. brings me to, you know, looking at the pictures of Charles and Camilla sort of like smiling away through their tour of the southwest. They must, you know, they must kill them sometimes to have to just carry on as if nothing's wrong. Well, I think they're doing, um, you know, what they've been trained to do and, and what, the, what they enjoy and they're happy doing that um, but remember with Harry I mean they made great thing a few weeks ago about how they were taking extended paternity leave and maternity leave to spend time with baby Lily and stuff and then we've been having a string of commercial announcements yeah, but the truth is they've discovered like everyone else it's pretty boring hanging out with a baby <laughs> <laughs> I could have told yeah, them that no argument no. from me there I love, we love them but yeah stay in the news but yeah. I, I think you can also um, underestimate how much um, importance is given to the engagements that you know, like Charles and Camilla are carrying out in the West Country. You know, local media, local TV really cover these events and it means a lot to people um, involved. So, yes, maybe on a national, international level, it's Harry that gets the headlines. But, yeah. but that's what matters. Richard, that's what matters. It, what, what is the point of the royal family? It's about burnishing the British brand. Now, the argument it, is all PR good PR? That, that's the question, because Harry doesn't come with you know, relentlessly good news for the royal family, but he does keep them at the top of the fame game you know and actually Charles and Camilla you know I think we notice them more now do we sometimes some of us feel more sorry for Charles some of us feel the fond affection we've all failed as parents you know so 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 maybe this won't end up being so terrible you know, let's I'm trying to find a positive put a positive spin on it for old Queenie if, if nobody else she's got a big platinum year arguably this gives another soap opera dimension I see the fifth series of the crown don't you in the in the sunlit uh, hills of, of well, well, and you know we're sort of we're, we're, we're incubating yeah. the cast members for that. We've got Prince George turning eight this week. Did you like the new portrait? I, I loved it. I mean, the thing that really caught my eye was the fact he was um, sitting on a Land Rover, and I, I sort of like to think that was a nod to um, to his great grandfather, Prince Philip. And that it's not was hugely environmental, Tess is though, is it? A face. No, I'm just yeah. saying if your yeah. parents are writing Earthshot, you know, save the world, don't use carbon, and your baby, your eight-year-old's on a, on a Land Rover. You know, gas I'm sure they'll be bringing like out an electric one, don't well, I? Well, I think, you know, they're, they're very durable <laughs> Land Rovers, aren't they? They last a long time. But going back to that football final, you know, he, he was exemplary, his behaviour. He didn't stick his tongue out. There was no snot. There was no tantrum. 
I've got to say, how does Kate do it? But they have shielded him from the spotlight a lot over the years. Is that gradually moving in another direction? Are they changing that? Well, I think um, they're benefiting from you know arrangements they've had with the press for years and which Harry benefited from, that he and William were left alone during their years at school and university. And that's the same with Prince George. I mean, my goodness, you know, I'm offered stories about Prince George and his school and what's happening week in, week out, but I don't run them because we've agreed to leave the, the children, you know, alone as, as they grow up. The cynic in me would say a fat lot of good it did William and Harry, you know, gloves off for years and years. You know, in the end, it was just arguably they weren't hardened, were they? Uh, so when they eventually emerged from the cocoon, it was all a bit of a nightmare. I, I think, you know, George has got to walk the tightrope. The choice is, do you stay in the gilded cage or don't you? And I think you'll probably look at Uncle Harry and he'll stay put. I think you might be right there, but we'll move on from the future King George VII to his forebear, King George III now. He reigned for nearly 60 years and dealt with mental and physical health struggles for much of his life and was the subject of the film The Madness of King George, and he was even portrayed in the hit musical Hamilton. Last year marked the bicentenary of George III's death, and now a new exhibition at Kew Palace is taking a fresh look at his life and achievements, as well as the taboos around mental health. Mail Plus reporter Jess King has the story. A family man who was devoted to his wife and children. George III came to the throne in 1760 after the death of his father. He was the third Hanoverian monarch and the first one to be born in England and use English as his first language. George III is widely remembered for two things, losing the American colonies and going mad. But that is far from the whole truth. Curator Polly says there's a lot more to this king than the much peddled myths. In this exhibition, what we really wanted to do was kind of get away from the Blackadder loony as a king on loon pills and actually show George III as an intelligent and educated man, but also a man dedicated to the betterment of his country. So all of his interests in science, in agriculture, in architecture, they weren't just sort of the whims of a king. They were, um, his personal patronage actually was all about I can invest in this and see how we can apply it to Britain as a whole. One of the things that really interests me is that his political letters to his ministers, not only did they have the day that they were written on, but they also had the time. And I think this really tells the story of a king that is putting pressure on himself, time pressure, pressure to, to exceed and excel. And this is something that really started off in his childhood in Kew. King George was a hands-on dad. He and his wife had 15 children, but sadly, two of them died before adulthood. It was a tragic time for the family, and alongside the growing pressures of governing, it may have contributed to George's deteriorating mental health. Polly says society at the time was deeply prejudiced, and there was a lot of shame and secrecy about the king's struggles. In the late 18th century, people were actually terrified by mental illness. There's still quite a lot of superstition around, so um, the manic episodes that George III was associated with, the very fast speaking, a lot of people would kind of take that as being almost possessed by de demons or spirits. It was frightening and it was also taboo, so the idea of the king who is um, the embodiment of the nation, so the king's head is the head of the nation, and if that goes wrong, it's the idea that the nation could be going wrong as well. It was a monarchy destined to endure. Stop! 
George III has been the subject of countless films, books and plays, but his legacy has almost been entirely eclipsed by the story of his mental health. In this exhibition, Q have partnered with local charities and asked members of the public to submit their own important objects to be put on display as a means of inspiring discussion and reflection. We're living in a world where one in four people are living with mental ill health. So that's today. So it's not uncommon. Um, you know, people are all, we're all really, when you think about it, on a mental health journey. We all have highs, we have lows. And if anything, this last year has shown shown that in really in a, in a stark light. In one of the cases, there is a cross stitch that was contributed by Lane Line. She um, is somebody who, um, as she explains, was dealing with a lot of anxiety. And in her, her anxiety, she would shake and she would drop things. Through, through talking therapy, she realized that cross-stitch was actually something that would help her by allowing her to concentrate, getting the needle through, and seeing this really amazing sense of accomplishment. I guess it's kind of a, a metaphor for um, getting through that, that low period and, and coming into something more positive in life. Since King George's time, a lot has changed, and the current royals often speak openly about grief, anxiety and depression. This exhibition is hoping that a better understanding of one of our former kings could influence our perception on mental health in the 21st century. If you want to go and see that, tickets for George III, The Mind Behind the Myth, can be booked on the Kew Gardens website. But that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to Victoria Murphy, Dr Tessa Dunlop and Richard Eden. And as always to you for watching. We'll see you next week.